0: Good evening and welcome to our class on Prashad Vayetze. We're going to be learning a very beautiful talk from the Rebbe, which actually was not set on this week's Parsha. It was set on Purim. And it actually might be familiar to some of you from a previous course. But today we're going to be learning it directly from the Rebbe's talk. And uh, before I get into it, I'd just like to share a, a cute little story from Chelm that I was just reminded of. I think it kind of ties into the general theme that we're going to be studying. Um... In Chelm, which was, you know, that traditional mythical, it, 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 it's a real city. But for some reason, in in Jewish uh, writings, it became the official city of, of all the fools or those that thought they were smart. And um, so it was the winter and uh, people would wake up in the morning and uh, and there was snow all over. the You know, it was beautiful, the snow, but they were very bothered because there was a guy that was hired to be the Vekir. The Vekra means he would wake everyone up to come to the synagogue. So he would walk around early in the morning, knocking on everyone's windows to wake them up. Problem was that as people came out, they weren't able to appreciate the beautiful white blanket of snow on the ground because already this man's footsteps, the boots, the boot marks were all over the town had already woken everybody up. So when people came out of their homes, they weren't able to see this beautiful white, you know, the snow. So all the smart men in town, sat down, and they tried to figure out what could we do so that when it snows, people should be able to walk out and see the beautiful blanket of stuff. So they call over the Vekker, a guy that was hired to wake everyone up, and they're trying to figure out what to do. So the Vekker says, what's the problem? The problem is that my boots are making marks on the floor, right? And, and it's, it's a big problem. So you know what? I have, we have an idea. The idea is, is that I'm not going to wear my boots on my feet. I'll wear my boots on my ears. And with that, hopefully that will save the blanket of snow. And this way, when people come out of their homes, they can enjoy the scenery. You, you get the idea, right? So he was walking around barefoot in order to that there shouldn't be bootmarks, right? And what's left. Anyway, so how does this tie into the topic that we're going to be discussing? There is a problem in the world, which is called antisemitism. It's a big problem. Antisemitism. The question is, how do you deal with antisemitism? And unfortunately, many, many people have decided to take on the suggestion of dealing with anti-Semitism head-on and dealing with it and and a whole situation, basically taking their boots off their feet and putting it on their ears and making a big, big deal out of something that really Jews have to deal with very differently. And why do we have to deal differently with it? We're going to see throughout this class that first we need to diagnose the problem properly. Once we diagnose the problem properly, then we can find the best solution. And most of the diagnoses out there about anti-Semitism are quite foolish and they have no place in reality. And uh, today we're going to be seeing how does the Rebbe teach us, how the Torah teaches us, uh, how to understand what anti-Semitism is all about and what the what the proper approach to it is. Why we're we living about anti-Semitism this week? Because this week is perhaps the first um, the first situation of chronic anti-Semitism. Okay? Uh, why do I say that? One of the biggest results of anti-Semitism is the desire of people to destroy the Jewish nation. And on Passover, when we sit by the Seiner and we talk about, you know, those that wanted to kill us, we go back to the very, very first one that ever wanted to kill the Jewish people, and that is Lavan, Laban. Lavan, who was the brother of Rivka, of Rebekah, that he was a swindler. Um, but in last week's parish we learned that Yaakov was not able to remain at home because his brother Esau wanted to kill him. He was very upset that Yaakov had uh, how you say, outsmarted him, and he stole, so to speak, the blessings from, from Esau. And Sarifka suggested that Yaakov should go to Haran to Lavan, and that he should find a wife there, just like Yitzchak married a family member, so too they wanted that Yaakov should marry family members and uh, Yaakov should not marry from the girls of Canaan. And so he went off to Lavan, and he ended up marrying Rachel and Leah. And uh, and both of them had uh, maids that were brought into the marriage as well, Billa and Zilpah. And from these four women, were all basically the children of Lavan, uh, he built the Jewish nation. He gave birth to 11 sons and a daughter while he was in Haran. And then afterwards, when he came back, and next week's passion, we learn of the birth of the 12th son. Now, um, when when Yaakov came to Lavan, Lavan asked him, he said, look, you're going to work for me, but how should I pay So Yaakov said, I'd like to be paid with marriage to your daughter. I'm going to work for you. I'll be the shepherd. And, uh, you know, my wages is going to be my marriage to your daughter. So they made up that he's going to work for seven years and then he'll get married to Roch. After seven years, uh, instead of marrying off Rochel to Yaakov, uh, Lavan tricked him and he married married Leah to Yaakov so when Yaakov realized that Leah was the one that he married so he said I want to marry Rachel he actually promised Rachel he would marry her and so Lavan said okay you have to work for another seven years so he spent 14 years serving Lavan working for Lavan in order, to, in order to pay for his wives now he has his two wives let's go to source number one page three Jacob said to Lavan send me away and I will go to my place and to my land Give me my wives and my children for whom I worked for you, and I will go. For you know my work which I have worked for you. Laban said to him, "If only I have now found favor in your eyes, I have divined and the Lord has blessed me for your sake." Then he said, "Specify your wages for me, and I will give them." So Laban doesn't want Jacob to leave just yet because Jacob was a good luck charm for him. It was a source of blessing. There were many different things that happened to Laban as a result of Jacob's arrival. Chiefly among them was. That he finally had sons, Lavan was very bothered that he only had daughters. He also wanted to have sons, and so when Yaakov came, he had that blessing that he had sons, and he also became extremely rich. So he wanted Yaakov to stay. So he said, "Look, you already worked for fourteen years, and I paid you by giving you my two daughters as as wives. Now I'd like to pay you wages. And if I'll pay you in cash, or I'll pay you, uh, you know, just, just like any other worker, maybe you'll stay and work for me." So Yaakov Yaakov made a deal with Lovel. It's a whole complicated deal. You have to read it in the Chumash itself. Uh, but he basically said that all of the animals that will be born from here on that are going to be spotted, you'll give them to me and all the, 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 all the ones that are, that, that are smooth, uh, you will keep. And basically what happened was anytime that they made up that Yaakov would receive a certain type of, of, of animal, a certain colored animal, all of the sheep, all of the lambs, all the goats would give birth to that color. I said, I would belong to Yaakov, and then Lavan would switch it, and it would have to be a different color, and Yaakov was, it it was a whole, it was a whole situation, but at the end of the day, after six years of working for Lavan, after six years of of receiving wages, the Torah tells us in source two, the man became exceedingly wealthy, the man means Yaakov, Yaakov became exceedingly wealthy, and he had many animals, maidservants, manservants, camels, and donkeys. What happened as a result of Jacob becoming very rich? Nope. Source number three. We he heard the words of love and sons saying, Jacob has taken all that belonged to our father, and he has amassed this entire fortune from what belonged to our father. They started to I say accuse Yaakov of stealing everything. Sounds familiar. Yeah, that these are all the anti-Semitic tropes that go on, right? Uh, Jacob saw that loven's countenance had changed, and he was not disposed toward him as he had been yesterday and the day before. Um, okay, so Lovan was also in you know, other words, the atmosphere was poisoned as a result of the incitement of Lovan's sons. They had no reason to be upset; everything was fair and square. Jacob was above above bar, uh, but um, you know that's just the way of the anti Semites. They incite against the Jew, and then there's hatred. You know, finally Yaakov couldn't take it anymore, and uh, God actually communicated to him that it's time for him to go back home. And so they left; they escaped. Lavan chased after them, and Lavan planned to kill out the entire family. He was the first one that wanted to destroy the Jewish nation, but God intervened. God did not allow Lavan to hurt Yaakov and his family at all. And so, and and so Yaakov survives this. Uh, you know, I say he 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 survives this twenty years with Lavan, not just intact. But he comes back. When he went to Lavan, he was alone and he had no money. When he left Lavan, he had four wives, 12 children. He had 11 sons and a daughter. And he was very, very rich. But he escaped. Literally, he escaped with their lives. In other words, it could have ended up very differently because Lavan truly wanted to kill him and the entire family. So Lavan was the first anti-Semite. He was the first one that acted upon his hatred to Yaakov. And so it behooves us that this week we should focus on what do we do with anti-Semites and with anti-Semitism. And the first question really is, is what is anti-Semitism all about? So let's we'll go to page four. Let's in here. All righty, page four. So before we read uh, what the Rebbe said on Purim, I believe in 1965, yeah, is that where this Sifra is from? Nineteen, I believe it's nineteen sixty five? Um, the Medrash describes the two main, uh, the two main enemies of the Jews in the Purim story. Haman and Achashverosh. Both of them are enemies of the Jews. In fact, the Talmud tells us that Achashverosh hated the Jews more than Haman did. I guess he was just a bit more pragmatic. Um, but Haman was, was a rabid anti-Semite. He, he truly hated the Jews, and the Ahasuerus also hated the Jews. And together, they came up with the plan of getting rid of the Jews. So the Gemara, the Talmud in tractate Megillah says like this, to what can Ahasuerus and Haman be compared? There are like two individuals, one who had a mound in the middle of his field and the other who had a ditch in his field. So you have two farmers living side by side and one of them has this pile of dirt the other one has a ditch, an empty, an empty hole in the ground. The owner of the ditch said, Who will give me this mount? I would even be willing to pay for it. So the owner of the ditch, the guy who was filled, it was this empty hole. He passes by the other field and he sees this huge mound in the middle of it. He says, Hey, I need that mound because I need to fill up my ditch. I'm willing to pay top dollar for this mount. The owner of the mound said, who will sell me this ditch for the money, for money? In other words, I have to get rid of this mound. And here I see a big empty hole in the field next to me. I'll pay to be able to take my entire mound, my extra dirt that I have in my field, and to put it into this ditch. At a later point, they happened to have met one another. The owner of the ditch said to the owner of the mound, sell me your mound so I can fill in my ditch. The mound's owner, anxious to rid himself of the excess dirt in his property, said to him, take it for free, if only you had done so sooner. Now this is actually very, very, um, almost exactly the story that happens with Haman and Ahasuerus. Haman comes to Akashmerish and he says, there is this nation, they're very different than everyone, I'm going to give you 10,000... 000... Shekels. No, kikar. Kikar, kikar not just shekels, kikar, it's a huge amount of money. Silver Kikar, he's going to give 10,000 silver Kikar. I mean, you're talking about millions of dollars. I'm going to give you this amount of money. Um, because you know, if you get rid of the Jews, you're going to be losing out on taxes. So I'm going to pay you to allow me to get rid of the Jews. So, I'm going to pay you to allow me to get rid of your mound. To get rid of your mound. What does Achish tell him? Keep, Keep the money. money. I don't need the money. Get rid of the Jews. So this is exactly it. Ahasuerus is the guy that has the mound in his field and Haman is the guy that has the ditch in the field. Now let's analyze this, this issue. Why is Ahasuerus the one that has the mound? Why is Haman the one that has the ditch? So that I was going to explain that this describes two types of anti semites and Haman both hated the Jews, but in very different ways. righty, <clears throat> bottom of page four. One had a mound in his field. The very fact that Jews exist in this world is like a mound in the field for the anti semite He doesn't care what the mound is composed of. If it has special qualities, contains gold or silver, or is simply a mound of dirt. He is bothered by the very existence of the mound taking a place in his field. What is the Jew doing here? What's he doing there? What's he doing in my field? What's he doing in the world? In the words of the Medrash about Jacob and Esau, Esau said to Jacob, what are you doing in this world? Their argument was like this. Esau said, we had an agreement. I'm going to deal with this world, the physical world, the material world, and you're going to deal with the Abba, with the spiritual world. So who are you to have so much wealth? <laughs> Yaakov came back from love and he's wealth, exceedingly wealth. Esau says, what's going on? Since when are you uh, a Mr. Wealthy guy? Since when does materialism, since when is it relevant to you? Materialism, that's my ballgame. that's my ball game. That's my arena. What are you doing here? He's bothered. He's bothered by the existence of the Jew. The Jew does not belong in this world. Asaf didn't care about Isaac's blessing and the like. The very existence of a Jew is like a mound in his field. His hatred for the mound isn't because it inconveniences him simply because it is his field and the mound is a foreign object within it. He wants to have a flat field. He wants to see a beautiful flat field. This mound is ruining the scenery. That's it. The Jews are different. I don't like it. He doesn't care how they're different. Maybe they're different in a good way. It makes no difference. to them. He just doesn't want to have different people. He doesn't want to have the Jew in his eyesight. For such, page five, for such people, nothing can be done. Even if the Jew surrenders everything, gives him all of his money, becomes his slave, so long as he still exists, this anti semite will want to destroy him. The very existence of a Jew drives him mad. A Jew may think that if he takes office to fill in, God forbid, opens his store on Shabbat and closes it on Sunday, speaks in the local non-Jewish language, dresses like the non-Jew, acts like him, and attends his parties, then the anti-Semite will be his friend. This is wrong. So long as the Jew exists, this anti-Semite cannot be called. This is basically what happened in Germany. Right? In Germany, there's many, many Jews that tried to look exactly like the non-Jews. It didn't work. The Jew is different. And even though they robbed them of everything, they rob them of everything that they had. No, they have to kill them. They have to exterminate them. Why? The Jew is a problem. It's a mound in my field. Can you change a guy's mind? No. You can't educate this person. You can't convince them anything. He knows a Jew is different. Finished. You want to take? You want to take off the yarmulke? You want to take off the tits Take off the tefillin? Start to keep it? No, no, no. <laughs> you're you're a fraud. You're a Jew and you're different. That's it makes no difference. Then comes, so so this is much more of like a a simple, crass, low-life type of anti-Semitism, right? Just a simple boor. That's pretty much what Ahasuerus was. As the Talmud says, he he was a fool. He he was was a foolish, very simple type of of king, simple type of person. This is the simple type of anti-Semitism, which probably could be the most dangerous one. There's no one to talk to. All right. Now, bottom of page 5, one had a ditch in his field. This is, re- this is referring to Haman. A ditch means an emptiness, a cavity. This type of anti-Semite, when he sees the Jew, it's not that the Jew is different. The Jew causes this anti-Semite to feel an emptiness within his own life. Let's see. Another type of anti-Semite feels like he has a ditch, an empty void. The sages teach us that at Mount Sinai, when we received the Torah, hatred which in Hebrew is Sinah. You see there the correlation between Sinai and Sinah. It's very very similar. So at Mount Sinai, when we received the Torah, hatred descended into the world. Since the Jewish people received the Torah, the non-Jew who didn't receive the Torah feels like he has a ditch, an empty void in his life. This is a different type of anti-Semitism. By the way, we're not saying that all non-Jews are anti semites We're saying that when you look at the Gentile world and you see anti-Semitism, there are two ways how this anti-Semitism presents itself. One is like the mound in the field, just the very fact that a Jew is different, that already causes a problem. And the second way is that the fact that there's a Jew who represents the morality of Torah, the the beauty of Torah, that itself causes an emptiness by the non-Jew, by this Gentile that did not receive the Torah, and therefore, it's, it's, a, it's a jealousy. It's a, it's a tremendous jealousy. The non-Jews were given the opportunity to receive the Torah, but they didn't want to. The sages taught that God went around offering the Torah to every nation, and they didn't want it. But the element they didn't want was the Torah's restrictions. When, when God went around offering the Torah, they said, what does it say over there? So God said, do not murder. Eh, forget it. Another nation, do not steal. Eh, forget it. But the Torah also provides tremendous goodness, right? The goodness of Torah is something they want now. There's a, there's a lot of meaning, there's a lot of purpose in Torah, etc. The problem is you can't have one without the other. You can't have the positivity of Torah without the restrictions. Right? But anyway, these people, they're picking and choosing. They're they're screaming and shouting, and not fair. I wanted to have my dessert even though I didn't eat my, my vegetables. That's what they're complaining. They see that the Jew is eating dessert and see the Jew is keeping Shabbos and has a meaningful life, and is keeping the holidays, and 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 has a joyful and wonderful meaningful life. And they said, oh, I want to have that too, but without the restrictions that come together with it. <clears throat> now, so so here he's, he's a bit more sophisticated, right? It's not that he's bothered by the Jew. He's bothered by the meaningfulness. He's bothered by the morality, which is reflected as a result of the Jews keeping the Torah and Mitzvahs. This anti-Semite has a path to overcoming his feeling of emptiness. And what is that? By raising himself to a higher level. It's an option. doesn't have to become a Jew. But he could start to keep the seven Noahide laws. And as Maimonides says, that a non-Jew who remains a non-Jew, but believes in God, serves God as a non-Jew should serve God, behaves in a way that's in accordance with the seven Noahide laws, increases in acts of goodness and kindness. He has a portion of the world to come. On, in other words, he's serving God, and he's going to have a meaningful life. You don't have to be Jewish in order to have a meaningful life, in order to have a connection to Torah. So this anti-Semite that feels that void in his life as a result of seeing the Jew has an option. He has a way of being better. But here the Tzfatini of the words. But he rejects this option out of hand because he doesn't want to observe commandments like "do not murder." He wants to eat his dessert without eating his vegetables. He wants, in other words, he's not interested in being bound by the restrictions of Terah, by the restrictions of the seven Ohai laws. This occurred already at the time of the giving of the Terah, when God offered the Terah to the children of Esau and Ishmael. They asked what it says when they heard that the Terah commands do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal. All the nations rejected it one by one. Right? He has a problem. One option is to raise himself up. Fill up your ditch a bit. Raise yourself up. Be inspired by the Jew to live a more moral and and better life. So this anti-Semite, but he doesn't want it, right? Because he's not interested in being bound by the restrictions. So this anti-Semite has another way to address his feeling of emptiness. By the way, I'm on page page six, but the problem is, uh, the the one that I sent out, one that I sent out was a little bit different. I apologize. Second, right now we are on from page nine, actually. From page nine, for those that have the other handout, sorry. I apologize. So, <clears throat> uh, so this anti-Semite has another way to address his feeling of emptiness. Neither of us will have anything. The feeling of emptiness only arises in reaction to someone else that has something positive that he doesn't have. But if the Jewish people are destroyed, and Torah is lost from the world as a result, then he will lack nothing because no one else will have anything special that he doesn't have. Huh, what a what a, what a sophisticated person this guy is, mm-hmm. right? He says, what, what's bothering me? What, what's giving me this empty feeling that I'm missing out on something? The fact that the Jew has something, so instead of me working hard and being better, <clears throat> let me get rid of him. There was a, there's a story told. Obviously, no, no. In other words, just an interesting point that comes to the story. The Rebbe Rashab, the, the fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe, was a child. He had an older brother, Abzalman Arid. There were children that were playing. I think it turns. I think the Rebbe Rashab, who was younger, was actually taller than Abzalman Arid. There were little kids that were playing in the backyard or whatever it was, and at one point there was like this little ditch in the in the in the yard. The like kind of pushed pushed his younger brother into the ditch. So he was crying. So their father heard about it. So He calls over Ibn Aaron and says, "Why why did you push him into the ditch?" So he said, "I wanted to be taller than." So the Rebbe said, "You didn't have to push him in the ditch. You could you could stand up on a chair. If you'll stand up on a chair and you'll be taller." So, what's the idea over here? When you feel an emptiness, you feel jealous. You feel, oh, someone else has something that I don't have, right? There's two ways to do it. One way is to deserve it, you know, to bring yourself up to that level, to satiate your desire to have this type of meaning and and, and purpose. Or you could just say, hey, (laughs) if I get rid of the Jew, I won't be bothered. I want to have a conscience. And that's what this anti Semit wants to do. So you have one anti-Semite that's just bothered by this different Jew, the mound. The mound is causing, like he has a flat field, and he has this mound, something that's different. In, in Yiddish, it's like it's, it's piercing in front of the eyes. It's like standing up like a sore, sore thumb. Want to get rid of it. And by the way, no matter what the Jew is going to try to do in order to make as if he's like the Gentiles, it won't work. The Jew is different. We got to get rid of it. That's it. The other anti-Semite, his issue is not that the Jews are different. His issue is that the Jews have Torah. The Jews cause him to have a guilty conscience. The Jews are the ones that highlight his immorality. The morality of Torah emphasizes how immoral this person is behaving. And he's bothered by it. He has this emptiness, this cavity. what so what do we do? Get rid of the Jew. The two and anti- we're continuing on the Rebbe's words. The two anti-Semitic personalities of the mound and the ditch are related. So really, Achashverosh and Shemar are not really two different people. They're actually it's it's interconnected, because the reason why the Jew's existence is like a mound in the non-Jew's field is because he feels an empty void, a ditch in his field. So what are we diagnosing over here? Oh, so let's continue. Ultimately, these are two sides of the same point. From the physical perspective, the anti-Semite proclaims that he can't stand the physical existence of the Jew. There's a mound in his field. And from the spiritual perspective of the soul, the veritable part of godliness, that is the reason God descended on Mount Sinai and gave the Jewish people the Torah, the anti-Semite feels an empty void, a ditch. The anti-Semite is essentially bothered by two parts of the Jew, the body of the Jew and the soul of the Jew. The body of the Jew is inherently different than the rest of us, and therefore we want to get rid of the body. The soul of the Jew, that's what causes the anti-Semitic to feel an emptiness within, and therefore he wants to get rid of it in order that he shouldn't have a guilty conscience, in order to fill up that emptiness, that void. You think that, he thinks that's what's going to help. <clears throat> so let's continue. This is the meaning of the Talmud's parable. So why does the Talmud have to tell us this? Why does the Talmud have to diagnose The the anti-Semitism of Achashverosh and Haman. Achashverosh and Haman can be compared to two individuals, one of whom had a mound in the middle of the field and the other of whom had a ditch in the middle of the field. When contemplating and trying to make sense of the entire episode of Haman and Achashverosh, one may think that it all happened because Haman was jealous of Mordecai. He bribed Achashverosh with 10,000 pieces of silver and because Ahasuerus was a stupid king, he agreed, not understanding what Esther would later explain to him, that the adversary has no consideration of the king's loss. You think, why, why did this all happen? Why did we come to a point that um, that Ahasuerus that, that and Hama made this alliance and as a result endangered the very existence of the Jewish people because Haman was smart and Haman was jealous? and Haman was able to manipulate Achashveresh, who was stupid in the first place, but had been intelligent, <clears throat> or if someone else would have offered him 11,000 pieces of silver, more than almost 10,000, the entire decree would never have been made. Similarly, if Haman hadn't been so wicked, or if someone had convinced him not to be so offended by Mordechai's failure to bow down to him, or there are those that even suggest, or if Mordechai hadn't angered Haman with his conduct, any of these courses of action would have prevented the entire decree from being made. So there are those that want to analyze the situation and say there were so many other ways how this thing could have gone down. There were so many ways how we could have um, how, how we could have circumvented the whole problem. If only Asher Ach- Ach- was smarter. If only someone bribed him with more money. If only Mordechai wouldn't anger Haman. Right, all, all different ways. If only. So you know the Talmud tells us: stop daydreaming. The Talmud negates this, stating that it is a misconception. The aforementioned events were the natural trappings of the matters. In other words, the fact that Achash was stupid, yes. The fact that Haman bribed him 10,000 talents of silver, yes. The fact that Haman was jealous of Marnachem, it's all true. But that was just the way it all evolved in nature. This is the way it all played out in nature. However, but the ultimate truth of it all was Ahasuerus and Haman can be compared to two individuals, one who had a mound in the middle of his field and the other who had a ditch in the middle of the field. Basically, these two were blind anti-Semites and there's nothing you can do about them. You're not going to change it. Ahasuerus has his mound and he's bothered by it and Haman has his ditch and he's bothered by it. Nope. So what, we should give up? So let's continue with the C. So what should we do? So considering that HaKashverish and Haman are like an owner of a mound and an owner of a ditch, what should we do about it? Should we go to a person like HaKashverish and attempt to influence him to revoke his decree? We just explained that he is like the owner of a mound who wishes to rid himself of the Jewish people. If so... What would any efforts to influence him help? Right, If we basically just came to the conclusion that there's no one to talk to, so what are we? What are we supposed to do? So let's look back at the story of Purim. What did Mordechai and Esther? Do? The revocation of the decree was achieved by Mordechai establishing a fast day, gathering twenty-two thousand children to study Torah and pray until their cries reached the heavens and God heard their cries like kids and sheep. At that moment, God took the sealed proclamations and ripped them up as the Medrash relates. All right, so what happened? We know that Esther called Mordechai and they came up with a plan. What was their plan? (laughs) Fast. That's the plan. Fast, gather all the Jews together. Mordechai brought together 22,000 children. They prayed to God, and that's how the whole thing was revoked. But that was only one part of the plan. It was another part of the plan. In addition, since God's blessings are given in where in whatever you do, in other words, God doesn't just send money from heaven. You got to do something for it. Natural efforts were also needed. You know, how, do, how does food grow? Food grows from the ground, but only if it rains, right? If it rains, then food grows. But let's say you do not plow and you don't plant. And God sends rain. Does it help? No. In other words, God sends rain. God sends his blessing. But you have to prepare the earth to receive the blessing. Same thing over here. The Jewish people needed a miracle. They needed God's intervention. However, in addition to that, they also needed to do something in, in the world of nature in order to get rid of this decree. <clears throat> Esther therefore wore royal clothes and came to speak to and held a party that incited jealousy towards Haman, and ultimately she was able to revoke the decree in a natural way as well, right? This is what happened, right? She called, she she after three days of fasting, right, which we're going to analyze in a moment, after three days of fasting, she goes to Achashverosh, and um, she invites him and Haman to a, a banquet. At the first banquet, Achashverosh says, I'd love to give you something, what do you want? So she said, I want to have another banquet. That already made Achashverosh Wary of Haman, he started to suspect that something was up, and in the second banquet, then she was able to strike. Or she was able to say, "He is an enemy of the king," and the rest is history. Haman was killed, and the Jews were saved. But that was only that was only after the Jewish people came together and fasted, and Esther herself joined them in the fasting. Let's continue here. This is expressed in Esther's conduct when Esther needed to find favor in Achashverosh's eyes even though she hadn't been called to him for 30 days. Seemingly the first, thing, you know, the, the the interesting thing about this is, you know, if you look at the story of Purim, so when Mordechai told Esther that she has to go to the king and, you know, do her thing, she has to plead for her people, she said there's a big problem. problem is that there's a new sheriff in town, his name is Haman, and the first decree that he made when he became second to the king was that you're only allowed to come to the throne room, you're only allowed to come to the king if you're invited by the king. If you weren't invited by the king, you're not allowed to come in. If you come in uninvited, you're killed on the spot. And Esther said, look, not only have I not been, been invited recently, I haven't been invited already for 30 days. She hasn't seen her husband in 30 days. What she's intimating is, I'm probably not wanted by him. And So if I'm just going to walk in, first of all, I'm pretty sure that he doesn't want me. Secondly, if I walk in uninvited, is going to kill me. What's the best thing for Esther to do in order to be found in order to find favor in Ahasuerus' eyes? Look good, right? That's that's probably the best thing to do. <clears throat> but she didn't do that. She fasted. Seemingly the first thing she should have done is to go to a beauty parlor, dress up, and beautify herself. She needed to do everything possible to find favor in his eyes because we don't rely on miracles. What did Esther actually do? She called for an old rabbi, Mordechai. No, Mordechai was 95 years old at the time. Old man. She said to the rabbi that since it is necessary to act naturally, <laughs> right? I have to go to the king, right? We have, we have to we have to get rid of this decree. We have to get rid of these two anti-Semites. We have to figure out what to do with them. Diplomacy is not going to work. There's no one to talk to with Akashir. There's no one to talk to with Ha-S2 either. But I'm mean, going to have to do my thing. Therefore, therefore, gather all the Jews and fast for me for three days. Not only should Mordecai fast, that wouldn't be a big deal, but all the Jews, young and old, and even me. Esther said, I'm going to fast as well. Esther needed to look good to find favor with Ahasuerus. But she said that she would worry about that immediately before entering the king's chamber. First, she would fast together with her maidservants. And then she continues and says, I will go to the king contrary to the law. I will go with self-sacrifice. And this is what guarantees my success. And even if not, that wouldn't change anything because a Jew needs to fulfill his obligations and success is in God's hands. This is what Esther is basically communicating to Mordechai. She says, there's no natural way of dealing with this crisis because we're dealing with anti-Semites. There's no one to talk to. We're not going to blame you for angering Haman. Haman's got an issue. Even if you would bow down to him, he would be upset. He's got a problem with having Jews in his empire. Period. There's no one to talk to. We need God's help. And therefore we're going to fast. We're going to do teshuva. We're going to pray. Since a miracle doesn't just come from heaven, we have to do our part. So I'm going to play diplomacy. And since it's only playing diplomacy, I'm going to worry about how I look right before I walk in. But until then, I'm going to be praying. I'm going to be, I'm going to be doing the real thing, what really changes stuff. This point is the test for oh, and not just that, when I go, I know that I'm doing so with self-sacrifice, serious Asnath. She knows that the fact that she's walking into Akashvaraj's throne room without being called, and she's doing so only in order to save her people, that means that she's really only depending on God. She has zero confidence. In her natural abilities to overcome this crisis on her own this point is the test for esther's approach to the king is she doing this relying on my power and the strength of my hand or is she doing it because esther obeys mordecai's instructions she's doing it because she is a messenger of mordecai who is the messenger of god to the jewish people when esther chose to approach the king after fasting for three days we know that esther obeys mordecai's instructions she's not doing it because she thinks oh I am his beloved wife, and I'm going to woo him into saving the Jewish people. I have political clout. After all, I'm the queen of the kingdom. No, 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 no. She knew that that had nothing to do with anything. She is first going to fast and pray to God. And she's going to go knowing that she's walking into the lion's den. And she's only doing this because this is what Mordecai told her to do. She is the, she, So after that, she is then successful in forming a receptacle in which God's blessings will be able to be manifested. So that's that's really the secret of the story of Quorum. That's the message of the story of Quorum. Number one, how do we diagnose the anti-Semite with anti-Semitism? It has nothing to do with reason. There's no explaining anti-Semitism. And there's no talking down the anti-Semite from his anti-Semitism. Anti-Semit is anti-Semite. That's it. Either he's bothered by the fact that Jews are different, or he's bothered by this guilty conscience, the fact that he's empty as a result of seeing. The fullness and and, and the beauty of Judaism. Whatever it is, there's nothing you can do about it. Hiding Judaism won't help. Rejecting Judaism won't help. Selling yourself as a slave to the Gentile won't help. Nothing is going to help. No. So what is going to help? God. That's it. Being a prouder Jew, a more committed Jew, getting involved in Judaism. That's the only thing that's going to help. Now. Does that mean that we should shut down any type of diplomacy, any type of connections? No. As we see with the story of Esther herself, Esther went to the king. The reason why the whole Purim story happened is because Esther was actually the queen in the most natural place for that type of intervention. So we see here this balance. On the one hand, Esther had to be the queen and she had to go to the king and play the palace intrigue, play the politics in order to get the the required outcome, but she knew that the success of these natural channels would only was is only due to God's blessing. And so, with that, we're going to, to go into a, another uh, a, a, another point. Um, in, in the old handout, it's actually B, so you go back to that page. But in the new handout it's on page twelve. Um. In the old handout, we're going back to page four. So this takes us back to the first temple era, uh, when there were prophets who were giving over messages from God. Uh, during this time, uh, there was there, there were the, the two major powers in the Middle East was Egypt to the south, and then the king of Ashur Assyria uh, was coming from the north, and they were both basically wrestling over the entire region. So the prophet Hosea sends a message to the Jewish king like this. We're on page 12, or on page uh, 5, if you're on the old one. Source number 5. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses. Horses refers to Egypt. Egypt was like the, 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 uh, the provider of horses to the world. They had the best horses. In fact, the Torah says, it's an interesting mitzvah in the Torah with regard to the king. A king is not allowed to have a lot of money, a lot of wives, or a lot of horses. Why is he not allowed to have a lot of horses? So that he should not send the Jews back to Egypt to, to become his, uh, his his horse uh, purchasers. Um, in other words, if if the king would be into horses, he would send the whole contingent contingent of Jews to settle in Egypt in order to provide him with horses. And that's against the Torah. The Torah does not allow for a Jew to, to, to settle in Egypt. Anyway, the point is that horses represent Egypt. So in this cryptic, well, it's not so cryptic, but Assyria will not save us, and we will not ride on horses. In other words, Egypt won't either save us. We will no longer call the work of our hands our gods. In other words, don't start to, basically, the Jews were caught in a bite. Assyria and Egypt were, were mortal enemies, and the Jews had to choose a side. So they had chosen to make an allegiance with Egypt. So Hashem is basically saying, don't do that. Don't make an allegiance with Egypt. That, that's a big mistake. Uh, let's continue. With the, the, how the Rebbe analyzes this. The Torah says, the prophet says, Assyria will not save us, meaning that we will cease to request human assistance from Assyria and Egypt. And we will not ride on horses referring to the assistance of Egypt that Egypt would provide Not only will they not be the source of salvation, on the contrary, the verse terms Egypt a splintered reed of a staff that is incapable of supporting the person relying on it, and it pierces the hand of anyone who leans on it. Basically, Heisheh is saying it like this. Jews, don't depend on the Gentile nations. Try to be independent from both of them. Uh, Time passes. And there's a new kid on the block. His name is the the king of Bovo, Babylon. The Babylonian king, in the beginning, wanted to, just wanted to control the area. He wanted that all of the kingdoms uh, in the region should send him taxes. So the prophet then was Jeremiah. And here's the message that Jeremiah sends. So I'm sorry, the Babylonian king came and he fought with the Jews and he exiled a whole contingent of Jews into Babylon. So the prophet Jeremiah tells the Babylonian Jews, so said the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel to the entire exile, which I have exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and dwell therein, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and bear children, take wives for your sons and give your daughters to men and they shall bear children. Multiply there and do not diminish. Seek the peace of the city where I have exiled you and pray for it to the Lord, for in, for in its peace, you shall have peace. He tells the Jews that were sent off into Babylon, guys, don't fight with the Babylonians. Settle down. Get, not get comfortable, but basically settle down and pray for the peace of the Babylonians, which are your host country at the, at the moment. Um, then he sends a message to Tzitkiyo, who is the king still in Judea. And he says the following. To Tzitkio, the king of Judah, I have spoken all these words, saying, Bring your necks into the yoke of the king of Babylon, to serve him and his people, and live. Why should you die, you and your people, by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence, as the Lord has spoken concerning the nation that will not serve the king of Babylon? Basically, Jeremiah is, is, is communicating to the Jews, Submit yourselves to the Gentiles that are coming to take you over. Hosea said, Ignore them. They're not going to save you. Only God could save you. And here he's saying, pray for the for the peace of the city, for your host country. Submit yourself to the king of Babylon. What's going on? So let's continue here from the Rebbe. On the other hand, the prophet Jeremiah instructed us, seek the peace of the city to which I have carried you into exile and pray to God for it. Because if it has peace, you too will be at peace. He also instructed to send messengers to make peace with the non-Jewish king Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon and pay the taxes he demanded. Although Nebuchadnezzar was no less wicked than the Assyrian king or Pharaoh, the king of Egypt is termed as a splintered reed, while with Nebuchadnezzar they were commanded to make peace in order to guarantee the future of the Holy Temple and the reign of King Sittiyo. Unfortunately, King Sittiyo did not agree, and uh, as a result, the temple was destroyed, King Sittiyo was taken into exile, And killed. So what's the balance here? Just as was the case in the time of the first temple, so too was it, so too during the time of the second temple. And throughout all the generations, this has been the approach of true Torah leaders who cared for the Jewish people, both as a community and on the personal level. On the one hand, they cautioned us not to rely on favors from the non-Jewish nations, because this would be a false hope that would not help and perhaps even cause harm. At the same time, we see that they invested effort into attempting to influence non-Jews. Despite considering the non-Jews a splintered reed, they even used money to try to influence them, for which purpose they taxed not only the wealthy, but even the poor and Torah scholars. We see that when they came to true Jewish leaders, true Torah leaders, they had this balance. The same balance that Mordecai and Esther had. When they came to dealing with the anti Semites, Ahasuerus, and Haman. So what do you do? First, you have to know that it's all in the hands of God. And the only way that you're going to be successful, the only way they are going to counter anti-Semitism is not by shedding our Judaism, it's by strengthening our Judaism. That's where the blessing comes from. For two reasons. Number one, because shedding our Judaism won't help. Sending out a message that Jews should stop wearing kippahs in the streets in Europe is... is the worst thing you could do to deny a Jew of their identity, of their connection to God because a Goy wants to kill them, that's not going to be helpful. The is going to want to kill them anyway. The anti semite is going to help them, hate them, whether they have a yarmulke, whether they have a, a, a keeper or not. It makes no difference whether they're wearing sisters or not. Whether they're keeping Shabbos or not, he's going to hate them. So you have to strengthen your connection to Judaism. You have to strengthen your connection to God. As, as Esther said, Gather all the Jews, get everyone to fast. Everyone should do Teshuvah. At the same time, you definitely have to build bridges. You have to have diplomacy. There has to You have to have these regular natural connections and try to influence as much as possible. But don't think that it's because of your charisma and because of how you're going to repackage Jews and Judaism that's going to change the anti-Semites. No. What about and, building menorah? In the middle of your, in your, in front of your house, building a manure in front of your house is a beautiful thing because you're proud of your Judaism. And if everyone else is able to put everything else in front of the house, you should be able to put a manure in front of your house. You should be proud of it, right? We're we're blessed to be in a country which encourages religious expression, and uh, you know, in the public square, be able to uh, be proud of 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 your Judaism, and uh, and it's, it's a tremendous blessing. And, and that is what um, holds the anti-Semitism at bay. The only thing that's going to hold anti-Semitism and, and keep it in the woodwork, that it shouldn't rear its ugly head, is not by trying to undo it and not by trying to get rid of it. You, can, you can't get rid of something that doesn't make any sense. You can't get rid of it. All you can do is do your part to make sure that it does not affect us. Make sure that it does not have the, the power to actually get us. How did Mordecai and Esther neutralize the threat of Ahasuerus and Haman? Not by convincing them to love the Jews. It was a miracle. So the only way they were able to do it was by securing the divine blessing that brought about the miracle. Now, you can't just wait for miracles to fall from heaven. You have to do things naturally. So yes, you have to build bridges. You have to have dialogue. But not dialogue that tries to go and explain Judaism. We don't need to have that type of dialogue. You don't have to explain to a non Jew what Judaism is all about and hope that they'll hate us less. That's not the point. The dialogue is that there should be communication and that all those natural means that are necessary to to deal with the threat as it comes should be there. But when we have to deal with a crisis, we have to know that the first order of business is to make sure that we have, that we secure. God's blessings, and that brings us back to this week's parasha. Lavan was an anti-Semite; he wanted to get rid of Jacob and his family. How did Jacob and his family deal with it? Not by hiding their Judaism, not by shutting their Judaism. On the contrary, there were stronger Jews, prouder Jews, and God saved them. Lavan had the ability to get rid of all of them, and how 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 did that not happen? Because God comes to Lavan in the dream and He says, "Don't you touch Jacob? I'm warning you." That's the only thing that stopped. And that was it. And he ended up, yeah, they, they made a peace treaty, it's all good and fine. Levin was the still still the same anti-Semite. God made sure that he didn't hurt. Anyway, so that's that's our, our lesson of how we have to deal with anti-Semitism. Uh, no matter where it where it shows up, you have to know that that as you say digging into the into the into the dirt is never going to help. Because the anti Semite sees a mound, he sees a ditch. It's not gonna help anybody. And the best thing to do whenever we encounter anti-Semitism, say another prayer to God, do another mitzvah, encourage a friend to do more mitzvahs, give more charity, and and show that we are prouder Jews than ever before. Thank you all for joining us. And we'll see you all next week.